Tonight's talk is called A Courageous Moment. Jataka means birth story. The Jataka tales are about the birth stories of the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, in his innumerable uh, lives, working, purifying himself, bringing forth the, the, the paramis, or forces of purity within, to become the Buddha, to help liberate all beings everywhere. So Jataka tales in, the, in this Theravada tradition number 547. At one time, I spent a month retreat, a semi-retreat, uh, in a wooded area in a cabin in New Zealand, and I read all 400 and 547 of them. So I like to tell some of them. <laughs> They're also about us. Jataka's awaken the, the bodhisattva nature within us, the, uh, the power of story to perhaps recall something long forgotten within. So once the bodhisattva, born long ago, was a merchant in a small village near the foothills of the Himalayas. And he was a, a merchant. He lived in a, uh, a modest place with a courtyard and a gate at the front where he could see people of the village pass by every day. Little by little, he was uh, working on himself, interested in the spiritual life. One day, he was sitting on his, uh, on his porch. He looked across the courtyard, and he saw a monk more at peace than peace itself, with himself, with the world. This was a solitary Buddha, a solitary Buddha, is one who has become a Buddha, but is a non-teaching Buddha, prefers to live alone. So the solitary Buddha had come out of the, the uh, Himalayan mountains and for some reason chose the house of the merchant to put forth his bowl for his daily ration of food. Seeing this sight, the merchant's heart welled up with feelings of great generosity and love and, and the wish to offer food to this solitary Buddha in the hopes that perhaps one day he himself could become a Buddha and help liberate all beings. A, a noble intention, and he acted on it. He got up, got the best food from around his house, and began to walk across the courtyard. Lurking in the shadows was Mara, Mara is the personification of greed, hatred, delusion, the, the energy of anti-life, of non-spontaneity, uh, the spoiler, always trying to get in the way. And he recognized that, that this was a bodhisattva intending to become a Buddha, and that were this gift to be completed, were the offering to be uh, completed, that it would very likely lead to his becoming a Buddha. And Mara wouldn't have that. So halfway across the courtyard, Mara caused a great chasm to open up in front of him, a place of seeming great horror. 
the merchant was stepping across, and suddenly his next step was about to fall in to this great gulf. The vision of the solitary monk at the gate began to fade away. The hair stood up on its ends. Chills rushed through his body. We're going to leave our merchant hanging here for a moment. (laughs) He's uh, in desperate need of knowing what to do next. He, He needs some meditation instructions here. So I'm going to describe the three approaches to practice that would probably greatly help our bodhisattva merchant. They are attitude of care and respect as we approach our practice. They are, secondly, the attitude of of mind inclined toward reality, that is, inclined toward the truth, really seen deeply from within uh, the impermanence Joseph described last night, seeing the nature of existence in its phenomenal uh, characteristic as not being ultimately satisfying, seeing the empty nature of all things, mind inclined to truth. And the third important attitude in, in the way we approach our practice and our life of practice is a mind inclined toward mindful equanimity. Looking at this uh, first of the three attitudes, the quality really comes out of, of compassion. This attitude of care, respect. It's a quality really of reverence. And the way uh, my teacher Upandita uh, uh, described it was that the way we approach our, our seat of enlightenment, the zafu, the bench, the chair, that, if done with this quality of great reverence, this quality of deep respect and care, um, sets up a condition not unlike when, the, when Prince Siddhartha, in his final moments as a prince, uh, walked to the Bodhi tree on his way gathering seven bunches of rushes from a young man near the river and, and laying them at the foot of the Bodhi tree to be his seat of awakening the seat of enlightenment, upon which he sat sturdy and unmoving, determined to see the great truth of things. This, this way, I mean, just think about holding this attitude whenever we come to sit, whenever we come to surrender to the form of sitting, or whenever we arrive to surrender at the form of walking to and fro. We create, create with this attitude the context of sacred space, the place where all the doors of our perception are cleansed, where the purity of heart is cultivated and practiced. From that depth of inner work, sacredness begins to appear everywhere. Wherever we walk begins to become holy ground, when we, when we are living in this purity of heart. We make of ourselves a worthy recipient of this container of great wisdom and great compassion, the powerful lineage of the Buddhist teachings. In Burma, in, the, uh, in this last century of the 
of the millennium. There are great legends. Uh, Lady Sayadaw, Tangpulu Sayadaw, Mahasi Sayadaw, from which primarily this tradition comes from, Webu Sayadaw. These giants of Burma in this century uh, and the equivalents in, in Thailand, just, and this is just in the Theravada tradition, many more in Zen and Tibetan traditions as well, have, by whatever very fortunate karmic forces, ha- have brought these, these great lineage of teachings to everyone, you know, out of the monasteries, not just in the hold of the ordained nuns and monks. It's been a, a, ra- a rather radical century of receiving the, the wheel of the Buddhist teachings. Each one of these particular legends it represents certain style of practice, of technique, of teaching. Um, the one we do is primarily based on the uh, four foundations of mindfulness, body, feelings, mind, and all other dhammas, awareness of all other things to be known through the six sense doors. And even within that, there are many variations. Some teachers emphasize the, uh, the very careful elemental study of the body, like really knowing what's called the datu meditations, the elements of fire, water, earth, and air. That's the primarily fo- primary focus. Others emphasize more the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Some the primary focus is mind only, nature of mind, how it manifests moment to moment, what its true nature is. Emphasis on, on uh, uh, noticing the minutia in a limited area of focus or opening up in a broad global spectrum of choiceless awareness. All of these, and in many of their combinations, are, are skillful means. It is, they're the vehicle to take us to the goal. Each of these great teachers represent great streams. All of these streams, all of these lineage streams flow in to a great river of lineage. And this is the lineage of the the Buddhist teaching on the great liberation and great uh, compassion. Teachings of the Eightfold Path, the best of all conditioned things, Uh, natural morality, the development of the mind, and wisdom and compassion. This is the great stream, the great lineage, which we all receive, no matter what techniques, no matter what teachers, no matter where these uh, particular styles have been born. Behind it all, what matters is the right motivation. That is, if we're, if we're genuinely motivated uh, from care, from respect, from reverence, that is, we value the nature of this practice and really devote our lives to practicing, bringing them in, internalizing the teachings, making of the Eightfold Path who we are and how we live, making it active in everything that we do, we value on this level, this kind of motivation brings us great courage. Courage to to walk the path. The courage to walk into 
areas that might be frightful, terrifying. This is where we've left our merchant. So he's on the precipice. His foot is headed over into this great chasm that's opened up. It's, it's uh, now really clouded over. He can no longer see the solitary Buddha. It's disappeared. So is the gate, the laughter of children, the, the sounds of the villagers, the song of bird, uh, the color of the leaves. The morning, too, seems to have all clouded over. And he, he begins to feel the heat of stabbing pain, uh, uh, the fire uh, consuming all around him, walls of steel, uh, horrible sounds and scents, you know, voices saying, go back, go back, you'll never make it, you'll never make it. And he's trembling and fearful, his foot now still in motion. And, but the thought comes to him that this is Mara. This is Mara's old tricks of Papancha. Somewhere in his terror is that thought. And then his next thought is his original intention of offering this tray of rice and curry to the solitary Buddha waiting for him. So as frightened as he is, he takes that next step. He walks into it. He walks into what certainly feels like Mara's uh, fabricated realm of terror, of desperation, a desert of despair. And he takes more steps and more. And soon it feels like he's just walking on this, on this field of fire. And there's uh, sounds and allures of like the songs of the siren tempting him to go back. And the, the edges of swords all around him Going forward, it's this, this stuporous uh, uh, cloud of images and delusion that he's not quite sure where he is. He can't even see the tray of food, although he can still sort of feel its weight. More steps. It seems like hours go by. And then days. Somewhere in the back of his mind, he feels like he's still leading his life as a merchant and householder. And yet he's in this tunnel of whatever it is, fear and unknown and temptation and intimidation, with this slight light at the end of that tunnel. Sometimes it's so dark and confusing, he has to withdraw his attention to some refuge deep within, some small candlelight guiding him along. At other times, it's, so, it's such a, a, a desert of desperation, his, his awareness enlarges. He tries to take it all in and make great spaciousness and just walk on, still uncertain of anything at all. And it seems like years go by. There's no going back now. There's only a sense of going forward, and he doesn't even know what direction that is. He just takes the steps. A lifetime even seems to go by. It feels like his beard has grown long and gray. He can't remember how he eats, how he sleeps only that he keeps going on one step at a time, somehow mustering in each step this awareness, this compassion, this determination based on this motivation to take one more step. Caught in this field of papancha, of Mara's design to delude 
to keep us in spiritual slumber. This is what our merchant now is faced with as he's walking through his life in this, in this realm of fabrication. The second attitude of the mind inclined towards dharma, inclined towards the truth of things. This is the attitude that may resurrect his journey at this time. To be able to see that whatever's happening, no matter how it's constructed, is a construction, is a fabrication. That what he's viewing is in constant change, is impermanent, and has no controlling core. As the, as the Buddha has said in one of his suttas, what's being viewed is simply empty phenomena rolling along. Dispelling of the delusion that keeps us in spiritual slumber is held together by this grid called papancha. The the, the delusion, the self-centering of all experience, self-referencing, where we identify, where everything is an interpretation of experience rather than the direct mind that touches experience as it is. So that we see through the fiction of this grid. The Western order of science uh, over the last five centuries, uh, for most of the time until recently, uh, saw turbulent systems uh, as random. That is like waves or wind, clouds, storms. All the forces of nature were seen as, as chance happenings chance appearances, no real order, no real law within them. And so, and so some centuries back, they created this um, longitude and latitude grid in order to be able to sail when, when the, the Western world began its uh, ex- journeys of exploration you know, further off the coasts of, uh, of Europe and Africa. Uh, previously afraid that they were going to drop over the edge of the earth. This wasn't so long ago. So they created these latitude-longitude grids, and then the instruments for for, uh, building the grid were installed, and then the sense of locating oneself on this grid. And that's how the the, uh, modern sort of scientific, mathematically calculated sailing instruments were created, and how the Western world began to sail around. But one's relationship with the environment was through the grid, not directly with the environment. Very little direct relationship, understanding, connection, or felt sense of being part of these turbulent systems. Cloud, winds, sea currents, coloration on the horizon, none of those were red. And yet they had such a brilliant story to tell. They had such a language to describe not only where one was in their environment, but that one was the environment. Thousands of years ago, long before this sort of Western grid was created, the Polynesian wayfinders, the shaman navigators, uh, were well aware that turbulent systems uh, were quite lawful, were quite ordered behind their seeming chaos and learned to read them, and learned to establish where they were all over Polynesia. 
uh, a third of the planet. A trans-Pacific journey uh, last occurred 600 years ago until 25 years ago when this uh, Micronesian master, elder, was discovered in Satawal, Micronesia, named Mao Pilag, who was one of four or five who still had transmission of knowledge he learned from his grandfather of how to place themselves in sea and sky, how to hold the ocean in mind and the heavens in their mind and know where they were without any instruments whatsoever. Only Mao had the right combination of qualities to teach others and the willingness and began teaching uh, a young man in Hawaii named Nainoa Thompson this great art of of wayfinding, uh, navigating, finding the roads across the blue wilderness of the Pacific with a hundred percent awareness and sense of place in ocean and sky because nothing was separate. The cycle of the stars which gave them a map was the stars were not out there. The stars were as close as their experience of seeing. And the sounds of wind and the scent and taste of sea and salt Nothing separate, but right there in the immediacy of experiencing the sense doors and the currents of the sea, all with multiple languages. Mao Pialug, who began learning from his grandfather at age one and was already sailing by himself at five, could read as many as five different wave and current patterns simultaneously. When Nainoa was struggling with just two, Mao said, forget it, you're too old, at age 25. Just be patient, two can tell you a lot, you may learn more in time. Everything you need to know is in the sea. It will just take you some time to discover what you know. And so Mao, in his kind and quiet inward way, uh, began to teach what he knew. And it wasn't only through the senses. It was also from their sense of center, called pico, intuitively knowing the nature of turbulent systems. One time Mao was um, uh, letting Nainoa do really all the navigation when he had sort of passed through his novice stage. And Mao would just rest under a tarpaulin on the double-hull canoe uh, that was sailing areas of the South Pacific. Didn't say much. Most navigators sleep two to three hours a night uh, over a period of about 30 days. And then catnap, 15, 20 minutes in between. And yet they're not tired. They're tuned in, always tuned in. So generally Mao came out sunset to read the colors, uh, sunrise, read the colors, and rest of the time he was absent. He's just kind of lying down there, probably meditating. <laughs> One time, in the dark of rain, when nothing could be seen, uh, there was a, there was 
a panic in Nainoa's heart, not knowing what he should do. And this went on for many hours. Mao didn't do anything. He got lost. He couldn't see the moon that had been there earlier and judge where he was. And he tried and he tried. It is getting cold and getting afraid. And as the navigator, he's the leader. The rest of the crew look up to and, uh, and gain confidence from. Nainoa was growing more and more afraid and, uh, and anxious. Where am I? I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm lost. He went back to the gunnels, the back of the bow, and put his arms on the gunnels and the hood of his uh, wet weather gear, uh, put it over his head, and then sort of propping himself up to, so the crew could see him and, and be reassured. Inside, he said, he just collapsed. He just let go. He just didn't know what, to do, what else to do, so he just let go. And in that moment, he said, uh, for the very first time, he knew where the moon was from his center, from his pico. And he, he gave some orders to, to uh, come about and turn the boat in a certain direction uh, under the tarpaulin where Mao rested. He just smiled, having never come out. And within 20 minutes, the clouds cleared and there was the moon. And for Mao, this was second nature. He, he, uh, he just knew, even at times when he was resting, it was totally clear, no cloud in sight. And Nainoa was telling me one day that uh, they seemed to be going in clear direction toward the Marquesas. Mao just came out from under his tarp and said, take those sails down quickly. And put up the storm sails and come about and go in this direction. Within 20 minutes, gale force winds up to 60 miles an hour came. They would have at least torn their sails if not broke the mast or even flipped the, the boat, the hokulea, the double hull canoe. After an hour, the storm passed and they set the right sail again. Mao went down lay down again for another few hours. That vision, that way of seeing, of seeing patterns, of seeing natural law, of knowing how to read uh, the, the shadow currents that bend around an island several hundred miles away, but leave its memory in rippling effects uh, uh, downwind or down current. How certain kinds of clouds emerge high over an island even when you can't see the island, you see the clouds. And other clouds blow fast by trade winds that are known to come from certain island collections. These are the languages of turbulent systems. Those who pay attention, those who learn to be one with the environment, hear that language. Feel that current run through their bodies. This is the difference between a direct experience, in this case of the environment, are seen through a longitude-latitude grid and being completely removed from the environment. In the same way, Papancha creates a fabricated grid. Everything is an interpretation of something. Our likes and dislikes, they're really all a mirage, colored by our attachment, 
or our fear or in our delusion. Free of that mirage, not being seduced by our likes and dislikes, gaining some insight into the nature of grasping our generosity, loving kindness, our anger and fear, begins to plug us in to things as they are, to the lawful nature of dharma, of life as it is. We become less deluded. That grid has a less embellishing effect on how we live our lives. As, as our merchant was walking through this land of delusion and uncertainty and unknowing, all he could manage at times was to try and renounce all the temptations to give up his goal, to try and get back somewhere, to be overwhelmed by the intimidation, fear, and terror. Renunciation, real renunciation, is a generous experience, not depravity. It's keeping the focus and the spaciousness in balance. What's our aim? What are we here for in this life? What's of true value? What are we doing with a very short time we may be navigating turbulent systems? So the merchant held this in mind. He knew for some reason, although at times it was nearly forgotten, that he had to stand before the solitary Buddha and offer the food. After seeming centuries of clouds, Things began to clear as the merchant walked on. Sky opened up. He began to see the leaves of trees glowing silver in the morning light, hearing the laughter of children and the song of women bathing at the, at the village well. The clouds cleared further and he could see in the distant his original goal, the solitary Buddha, seemed to still be there. Remarkably, really, only a moment had passed. His curry and rice was still fresh, still on the tray. And he carried it up to offer to the solitary Buddha, who said, well done. (laughs) In the Buddhist Pali, it's sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Well done, well done, well done. He said, success and failure, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, all these play of opposites, pleasure, pain, all appear and pass away again like clouds drifting through the sky. Walk on, my friend. Walk on in this dreamlike world in the face of all the fears and obstacles and temptations that you ever face, you will find the great liberation you seek. Just walk on. Mara will tempt you or try to beguile you again. Just walk on. And the solitary Buddha graciously received the offering. And in that moment of offering, 
Some profound transformation happened in the heart of the merchant. For he went on to live his life and indeed was many times uh, entrapped momentarily by Mara. But having recognized him once, his time of being caught or stuck uh, became less and less. And he always came through. He practiced a life of great generosity and great compassion, which continued to propel him toward Buddhahood eventually. That one moment for him changed his destiny and secured in that life the great parami of determination and generosity. The teaching he walked away with with the care and respect and reverence, the the mind inclined toward truth, toward seeing the Dharma, toward seeing through the fiction of Mara's grid or fabrication. And that third attitude that the Buddha Uh, encourages us to develop the attitude of mindful equanimity at all times. Every waking moment of our lives. It is the mindfulness that begins to push aside the grid of fabrication and connect us directly to the laws of Dharma to feeling on deeper and ever deeper levels the nature, the flow nature of mind and body. And to understand that there is no controlling core behind that. And to begin to dispel that that most beguiling of all Mara's fabrications, that of a separate, solid self, ego entity. To carry this power of mindful, uh, mindfulness and mindful equanimity is like always having a center of gravity in the face of change, in the face of turbulent systems. So no matter what's coming at us, the, um, the praise or the blame, the pleasure or the pain, uh, the gain or the loss, there's this way of holding this uh, uh, contradiction of opposites so as not to be swept away, grasping after what's pleasurable and pushing away what's feared or repulsed. The center of gravity is like having a navigation, uh, a natural, instinctual navigation faculty within us. One way of understanding mindful equanimity is to combine the wisdom of non-attachment and compassionate action. Wise attention is the first aspect of equanimity, where we 
where awareness opens up to conditions. This is a navigator who through his or her senses tries to feel the currents, the play of colors, the ocean currents sweeping through the boat and then through their body, the visual play of waves, the scent, taste of salt, really tuning in in that way. When we pay close attention, we act with right motivation, whatever we do. We do what is to be done. In the case of our own personal liberation, uh, we recognize whatever degrees of attachment or ignorance are in the mind, and we value a meditation practice. We sit. We come to sit. We come to retreats. We begin to watch how mind-body works, how they influence each other, the interrelatedness. Joseph was saying this morning how desire leads to certain intentions, intentions to various movements or actions of body or mind. How weather influences us, makes us feel cold, and desire arises to act upon that coldness. And we seek warmth and do all the things that we do. There's no controlling agent making these decisions. The introduction of intentions this morning really begins to open up a whole new world, and that is that tremendous space of the present moment where we see what really appropriate actions are best to take. So in the context of, of practice, we, we measure, is, is my intention now to move out of reactivity to pain or fear? Or is it out of compassion to preserve practice energy and merely come at it another way, you know, to keep awareness alive and spacious and focused. Make little decisions like that, little discriminating awarenesses, so we navigate through a day as skillfully as we can and make the best of a retreat. We continue to watch uh, until great insights occur. Uh, The same insights, but deeper and deeper, seen as if never seen before. Each time there's an insight, there's more of a letting go. That's the purpose, that's the aim, that's the value of insights. Not to be clung to, not to reify. Insights themselves have their function of simply letting go more. Every time there's a deeper feel for impermanence or the nature of dukkha or the empty nature of all things. So that wise attention to, to... Uh, ourselves in terms of developing an eightfold path in our lives and doing the right thing, taking the right action. It also works the same in, in, in our daily lives, our ordinary lives. We pay attention. Every day there's some way that we can be of service to living beings within our reach, within our physical reach or or uh, uh, by phone or cyber or however it's done, there's some way of effecting great service and great kindness to people, uh, giving them courage when they're afraid, mirroring their innate goodness when we can touch our own and seeing how, how doing that increases or enlarges the sense of our innate goodness. Wherever we are, Whatever we're doing, whomever we're with, 
we learn to begin to value all living beings equally. And whether or not we receive praise or blame, whether our actions are, are known or unknown by others, we, we learn to act unconditionally, that is, with compassion, without any conditions. So the first part of this mindful equanimity is paying attention, taking compassionate action, whether it be about ourselves or for the sake of all other beings. Paying attention and out of that awareness, doing whatever we do or the action of non-action. The second part of equanimity, perhaps the most significant, important part, is its nature of non-attachment. Once, once we do, once we perform, once we act, it's like throwing a stone in a pond that sets in motion ripples, reverberations, out in all directions. The rest is the laws of the Dharma. What happens is up to other forces. You know, karma. We can't control the outcome of what we do. We can expend all the energy we wish uh, within the realm of skillful means and having compassion for ourselves. Do all that we can do. We can spend our lives dedicated, devoted to certain great causes. This is good. This is still the same. Paying attention, taking and acting compassionately. But that second part Letting go the need to control. Attachment to results. The stone's been thrown. Whatever rippling effects, that's up to natural law, to the karma of things. We can always act again. But each time to do that, you know, with that same spirit, because this is true non-attachment. This is acting from the deepest place of wisdom and compassion. To utterly let go. No expectation. It's a hard practice. This is the anatta element. This is the emptiness element here in this aspect of equanimity. Is this really trusting the Dharma? Sometimes the most simple presence is all that's asked for, really. I spent most of a good part of a year when my dad was dying four years ago. I happened. I just set my mind, my intention, to hopefully be there whenever I was most needed in the eight months in which all the the, uh, the process of his dying was occurring. And it was. I was so grateful because I was always home at the right time, you know. I, I sort of guessed at which part of the, uh, the three-month retreat at IMS I shouldn't be at, and, and, and actually Sharon took my place at that year's three-month retreat. And that was a really crucial time to be at home. I did the same in the spring retreat there. And, and I, learned, I learned what was really being asked of, of my dad and, and how to best use the teachings that I had been practicing. 
because surely many of the times I, I felt grief and I had a hard time with his, with his pain and difficulty. But I learned how what was mostly asked for uh, was my presence. And in that presence, I could feel, I could feel the depth of, of my grief. I could feel the deep wish to alleviate his, his pain or suffering. I could feel the gratitude, the closeness. You know, we hadn't touched in an in intimate way since I was, you know, an adolescent. I could stroke his hair and massage his feet and legs. And there was a, a, a communion and healing happening after, you know, at the end of his 87 good years of life in Hawaii. And in the final, even up to the very final moments, seeing him there and seeing something start to happen uh, that led me to believe that this was the moment, you know, the way he looked at my mom one last time and then took one in-breath and there wasn't an out-breath. And then, and then it was the most profound thing to, to completely be there in that space, you know, the tears are flowing, yet the gratitude was there and my, my clear intent on guiding him out doing metta and, and saying metta in ways that would, whatever transition he was going through, he'd feel comforted. I just knew that I was being asked by him to be present, not to need anything to be different. And that quality, that equanimity, that space of non-attachment could hold all the feelings. The grief, the gratitude, uh, and the grace of just being present. When I've practiced in deep retreat, at a certain point, after the initial fear and apprehension, you know, and after all these like 27 years or something of practice, still if I go into long retreat, like many of you, there's this little anxiety or apprehension. And do I want to go there? You know, do I, I want to step into that realm? After a few days of kind of dropping in in this way, for me it's always become this this great adventure, this real adventure of of discovery, of seeing things. You know, I I can imagine the early uh, Polynesian navigators having that same spirit of discovery, because for indeed for them, according to their oral tradition of chance, it was also a spiritual discovery. So I'm just thinking tonight, you know, it's one more evening, full evening practice today, and then uh, in quite a bit of time for practice tomorrow, and uh, most of the morning and early afternoon and uh, later in the evening. There's a lot of moments that there are, are, are many journeys like the merchants that can go through uh, these great chasms of the unknown, uh, 
to, to see in each moment what's distracting or what's causing one to be present. What I feel challenged by in my retreat is to somehow in, intuitively keep track of everything that happens moment to moment. From the very first time of waking, of my of eyes opening, or feeling, or becoming aware, as I lie down, to the last moment, I try to, you know, our teacher used to sometimes say, when we come to report, last night, did you fall asleep on the in-breath or the out-breath? And the spirit of it is just seeing the preciousness of every moment of mindfulness, valuing that. When we're really mindful, we're not experiencing life through any grid. You know, Mara's conjuring tricks have been dispelled. It's a very intimate, immediate connection with life as it is. And moments when we're not mindful, we're usually distracted or deluded or caught up in experiencing life, you know, through interpretation, through a filter. What quality, what motivation, what passion can feel that sense of this being an adventure? That you're willing, for example, after the bell, you know, in a few minutes, the talk will be over, we'll sit for less than a minute, and the bell will ring. How are you going to get out of this hall? What worlds are you going to be traveling through just in opening your eyes and starting to move your body? How does standing up happen? What stands up? What's going on when you stand up? And then what? How does your body turn? What happens as you walk out? What's coming up? in the body and in the mind. How many times does the mind feel like it starts to orbit out in some embellished space and then come back again? In real deep retreat, yogis often experience a certain kind of healthy um, alertness, almost like a kind of fear, but not a negative fear but like a jolt, a shock, when we're not mindful. You know, the shock of the oppression of spiritual slumber, you know, of not seeing, of not being awake. You think of that. Sometimes when I'm practicing in deep retreat, it feels like I'm underwater. You know, like whales can do these vertical suspension in deep water. And awareness, mindfulness, is that feeling of the water all around. And even the cells of the body can become so transparent, it's as if the water then uh, permeates every cell. And that water, again, like mindfulness. So that every movement, and in the mind's 
elements itself, the thoughts, the images, the emotions, that too seems to be permeated with this very subtle, pre-verbal, intangible mindfulness, mindful awareness. You know, awakening, more often than not, deep awakening happens when we're not looking. In between things. You may be surrendered to the form, sitting, walking. You may just be returning from a late walking and beginning to sit down. And a kind of death occurs. You're not the same person sitting down who began sitting down after that death. You may, at the end of a long day of practice, be laying down in your bed, just ready and willing that rest is now appropriate, but paying attention to the sensations, to how you arrange your body as you lay down, to the breath, to sounds, to whatever is appearing in your experience. And just in that moment, perhaps, of letting go, of relaxing, there can be, it seems like, a complete ending of all this impression, mind-body, this whole samsaric mind-body experience. Just evaporate. And what comes after that is someone very different than who began that laying down process. We do this for ourselves. We do it for each other. Where we have this center in Burma, I've said that this is one or two thousand years of practice in this area. There's nearby in the mountains, in the hills there, this place called uh, Parikama. And it's two valleys, one on the east, one on the west. Very famous uh, places of practice, little small monasteries with, with very similar setup. Deep cave, very deep cave with little corridors, places for walking, sleeping, sitting, bathing and so forth. And the, one of the stories that I learned from the monks at one of the caves was in the last century, there were two dear friends, both were monks. And both were practicing with the resolve to practice for complete liberation, to be free of all delusion in the mind. And they, they loved each other very much. And they each wanted the other to become liberated as much as they wanted it for themselves. So they made a pact. They said, if you reach this liberation uh, before the other, just please light a lantern and show it from the little uh, veranda outside of the cave, one of the cave windows, so it can be seen across the valley by the other brother monk. And they can take great joy in the fact that his friend has attained full liberation. 
So it's said they practiced real hard, real earnestly for many years. And then one moonless night, in the dark of the night, all of a sudden, from one side of the valley to the other, two lanterns went off, shone across, the light meeting in the middle. All from a single courageous moment. Let's sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.